October 31st, 1967. A car is found at the Richfield Park in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Inside, onlookers can see the bound, nude body of a woman lying in the back seat. It is obvious from the discoloration of her skin, as well as the way that she is lying, that the woman has died. But who is she? And why would somebody have killed her and left her in the park? Police are summoned, and when they arrive, they are quickly able to ascertain the victim's identity. She's a 29-year-old mother of two named Nancy Vogel. She had last been seen three days earlier after telling friends that she was going to play bingo at a local church. Since that time, friends and family have been left to wonder where Nancy went. Now it is known. Many questions remain. Who killed Nancy? Why? And how had she met the individual who had ended up taking her life? While some of these answers will be quickly apparent, the who that took Nancy's life will be 50 years in coming. Once it is known, her name will be added to the long-growing list of victims left behind by New Jersey's torso killer, Richard Cottenham. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me once again as we prepare to dive into a true crime and see what we can find. This week we are going to be looking at the murders of serial killer Richard Cottenham, who might be one of the most well-known serial murderers from my home state of New Jersey. Before we dive into the story, however, I have my normal plugs. If you would like to follow me on social media, be it Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, YouTube, you can find me at Ian Totten Author. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me under Corpse Creek. Just look for the CCP with a skull in the center and follow, and you can be kept up to date on all the happenings with both my written work as well as my podcasting. If you would like to find any of my five novels, that's the Blood Gods Trilogy, which is a dark fantasy tale of vampires ruling the world, the House of Silver Doors, which is a dark tale of black magic and possession in a rural New Jersey town, or the most recent novel, The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, my best-reviewed, best-selling book to date, which is a story of a serial killer stalking a town in the American Midwest in the 1970s. You can find them on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback format. The House of Silver Doors is available in audiobook form and coming soon to my official website, CorpseCreekPublishing.com, you'll be able to get autograph copies of all of the books. If you would like to help support the podcast, a couple quick ways you can do that. One is to subscribe and share on your favorite podcasting app as well as leave a five-star review. Let other people know what you think of the show. You can also make a donation to the show, which helps with production through either PayPal or Venmo. Just look for Ian Totten on there. Decide what you'd like to give and donate. No amount is too small and all is appreciated. You can't get enough talking about true crime. I was recently on the Thorn and Cross Carnival of the Macabre podcast 
talking the murder of Christina Pipkin in Arkansas in 1991. That is available on most podcast websites, including Spotify. So go over there and show them some love. Couple quick notes. I may have two special episodes of the Death Cast coming up here in the next month or so. I'm working on getting two interviews lined up that I think you people are really going to enjoy. And lastly, I want to send out my condolences to the Eaton family. For those of you who are not in the pro wrestling bubble or living underneath a rock, professional wrestler, beautiful Bobby Eaton passed away this past Wednesday night at the age of 62, and it's hit a lot of people I know either online or in my own personal life fairly hard, so I just want to send out condolences to them and the Eaton family. I know friends of the show, the Booking the Territory podcast, that's bttpod.com, did a pretty nice tribute to Bobby Eaton this past week, as well as former manager of the Midnight Express, Jim Cornette. He uh, covered Bobby for about two hours, and it's an absolutely heart-wrenching listen. So go look for those if you're so inclined. All right, find yourself someplace comfortable to sit back and relax, get yourself something to drink. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As you heard in the trailer, the body of 29-year-old Nancy Vogel was found tied, beaten, and strangled in the back of her car on Halloween 1967. Nancy had told friends a few days earlier that she was going to go and play bingo at one of the local churches in Little Ferry, New Jersey. When police arrived and began searching the crime scene, they found that receipts in the car indicated that Vogel had, in fact, gone to the Valley Fair department store. For those who have never been to a Valley Fair, it's a chain department store I've only ever seen in New Jersey. It was sort of like a Bradley's or even a Kmart before there was a Kmart, maybe like a Sears, uh, but a little higher end. It wasn't really like the department stores you see nowadays in malls, like a JCPenney's or a Macy's. They, these stores really took up, you know, an entire building all to themselves. So it was a fairly large place that would have been really easy for somebody to encounter Vogel and take her from, whether it was by force or through coercion. As for Nancy's body, it was noted that she had been severely beaten and had a black eye as well as a large bruise to the back of her head. Her hands had been tied in front of her with a length of thin cord and she had been strangled to death with a rope. There are different accounts of what was draped over her body. Some say that it was an old army blanket, others that it was, in fact, a seat cover. Regardless, the piece of fabric that was draped over her body is known to have come from inside of the car. Her clothing was discovered after the body was moved. It had been neatly folded and placed beneath her. The police did not have a whole lot of evidence to go on beyond the little bit that was presented in the car, other than the fact that Nancy had obviously been sexually assaulted prior to death. 
And unfortunately, at this time period, often after a few weeks or months investigating the case, investigators kind of would take a mindset of, well, these kind of things just happen. On July 17th, 1968, Jacqueline Harp, 13, of Midland Park, was walking home from band practice when a strange man in a car approached her and tried to lure her into the vehicle. Harp refused the man's offer of a ride, and the individual continued to persist, driving ahead of her and pulling over, at which point the man began to walk back towards her. Jacqueline, seeing this, took off at a run, but was soon overtaken by the man who grabbed her and dragged her back into a group of bushes. And I wasn't able to find any evidence as to whether or not Harp had been sexually assaulted prior to her murder, but based on the perpetrator's M.O., it is very likely that Jacqueline Harp was, in fact, raped before being strangled with the leather strap that had been attached to her flag. As with the previous murder, this case, too, went cold. On April 7, 1969, Irene Blassie, 18, of Bogota, New Jersey, was shopping in Hackensack when she was approached by a strange man who persuaded her to go have a drink with him. They took a bus ride to another location, after which the two shared a drink of some type, my guess most likely at a bar, after which the assailant offered to bring Blassie back to the bus station. The next day, Irene Blassie's body was found face down in about four feet of water in the Saddle River. She had been strangled with either a wire or cord. Again, there is not a lot of evidence as to the condition of her body, but I have to believe that it was similar to that of Nancy. On July 14, 1969, Denise Falaska, a 15-year-old was walking along the side of the road in Emerson, New Jersey, when a car pulled up beside her and the driver offered her a ride. Her body was found the next day inside a cemetery, and I'm going to read a short article on Falaska's murder. This one appeared the following day, the 15th, when she was found. Keep in mind as I read this article that she had not yet been identified. Cemetery yields body of sex crime victim. Saddlebrook, New Jersey. A teenage girl was found strangled and partially disrobed near a cemetery today in the third unsolved slaying of its kind in the past year, police said. The identity of the victim could not be immediately determined. The Bergen County Prosecutor's Office said the girl was clad only in black shoes, blue jeans, and a pink brassiere. A prosecutor's spokesman said the slaying was similar to two other unsolved murders of teenage girls in the Saddlebrook vicinity in the last past year. On April 8th, Irene Blassie, 18, of Bogota, was found strangled near Railroad Avenue about a mile from the new murder scene. Last July, 13-year-old Jacqueline Harp of Midland Park, just north of here, was found strangled with a cord from her high school banner. Police say the body of the newest victim was found near St. Paul Cemetery by a young boy riding his bicycle this morning. The boy, upon spotting the body, went home and told his parents, who called police. So what we have here is, it's a string of murders of teenage girls, all in a 
fairly specific vicinity in Bergen County. And even though at that point in our history, we really weren't looking towards serial murderers as actually existing, it appears that the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office is seeing similarities in these murders and is very probably starting to link them together which is pretty forward thinking if you really stop and ponder where we are the late 1960s the FBI had not yet begun their criminal profiling of serial killers and wouldn't for a number of years but this prosecutor's office is at least willing to imagine that the perpetrator might be the same in all of these killings. Obviously, we know now that the same man did in fact kill the victims, but at the time, it was an unknown. Just really quickly, I want to point out that all of these crimes weren't solved right away. In fact, I am presenting them in chronological order on purpose so that you can see how this killer's career in murder grew from the first killing of Nancy Vogel to then within a, you know, roughly a year time span, he murdered three unassuming young women and then it almost seems like he went into hibernation for a short period of time at least until 1974 which as anyone who has studied serial killers at any length knows is very unlikely that he stopped unless something happened within his life to either force him to stop Uh, or that came up and replaced his need for killing. That could be, you know, a change in life circumstances like being married or work becoming too consuming. Something world-changing that led to the killer either deciding not to kill or being unable to. The next confirmed murder of this individual, Richard Cottingham, took place on August 9th, 1974. And I want to stress really quickly, the murders he commits from here on out are pretty brutal and gruesome, much more so than the ones that I have talked about up to this point. Point, so listener discretion should be advised. So on August 9th, 1974, 17-year-old Marianne Pryor and her friend 16-year-old Lorraine Marie Kelly left the Pryor's home in North Bergen intending to head to the Paramus Mall where they planned to buy bathing suits for an upcoming trip to the Jersey Shore. Witnesses said they saw the two girls hitchhiking and that they had gotten into the car of an, of an unknown male. Now, according to Cottingham, much, much later, he had in fact driven the girls to a hotel room where he forced Lorraine into a hotel room before threatening to harm Lorraine if Marianne did not follow them into the room. At which point, he proceeded to beat and rape the two teenagers over a period of days, tying them up inside the hotel room and gagging them while he slept so that they could not escape. Again, as I stated, this was unlike his previous killings, which seemed to be rather, forgive what I'm saying, quick and easy killings. Um, This stretched on for days as he tormented the young girls and did God only knows what to them 
before tiring of the game and drowning both of them in the hotel bathtub. Before dumping their bodies into a field. Now, according to Marianne's sister, the family immediately knew something was wrong when Marianne and Lorraine went out because there was a rule in the house that they had to be home by 10 p.m. and if they were going to be late, they were going to call the house and inform their parents that, you know, whatever was going on, they were going to be late and that Marianne and Lorraine had planned to go to the mall by a bus and then come back at which point they were going to pack for this trip. When 10 p.m. came and neither girl arrived, the family immediately knew something was amiss and called the police, who back in that time frame more often than not would list these girls as runaways. However, it does not seem as though the police in North Bergen listed them as runaways and in fact almost instantly grasped that something was wrong with this situation and when they were found lying face down in Montvale five days later everyone involved's worst fears were realized Cunningham seems to have taken another break after this double murder until December 15th of 1977. 26-year-old nurse Marianne Carr was kidnapped from her apartment at the Ledgewood Terrace Apartments in Little Ferry. She was driven to a quality inn motel in Hasbrook Heights where she was raped and tortured. I can't really find any information as to whether this was a quote-unquote quick killing or not, but my gut instinct tells me that this one probably took quite some time and that Marianne probably experienced unknown levels of brutality before Cottingham finally decided to end her suffering and kill her. The next year, which would be 1978, a man using the name of John Schaefer approached a woman by the name of Karen Schlitt in a bar. He drugged the woman's drink and drove her to an unknown location where he raped her before leaving her for dead in a sewer. And I'm unsure if what they mean is he left her in a drainage ditch. I find that is probably what is meant by the term sewer as I grew up in New Jersey and you'd be real hard-pressed to find an area where you can actually get access to the sewers. So Cottingham raped this young woman and then left her in a ditch near a some sources say apartment complex, others say a hotel I'm going to assume it was more likely than not a hotel she was found by an employee of the hotel and thankfully survived although unfortunately for the woman or perhaps fortunately she remembered little of what had taken place that evening on October 13th of 1978 a prostitute by the name of Susan Geiger was picked up by a man who proceeded to drug beat and rape her before leaving her in a motel room in South Hackensack it seems that Geiger did go to the police following this assault but given the time period that we're talking as well as her profession at the time police really did not follow up on this particular assault there seems to have been a cooling off period after this sexual assault until December of 1979 
December 2nd, firefighters in Manhattan reported to a call from a motel near Times Square after workers at the motel saw smoke billowing out from underneath one of the doors. After forcing their way into the room, they what they found was pretty horrific. The bodies of two females, both with their heads and hands removed. The bodies had been doused with lighter fluid prior to be, being set aflame. This double homicide would earn the killer the moniker of the Torso Killer. Police were quickly able to establish that both victims were sex workers who had been working in the Times Square area. As I've talked about in other episodes, Times Square of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s was not the family-friendly, Disney-centric area it is today. In fact, it was a cesspool of drugs, sex, and other vices, with peep shows and 25-cent porn slot machines, all kinds of different things taking up the majority of the area. I can remember in the late 90s going to Times Square with friends of mine, and you would see the prostitutes lined up along the street corners looking for work, and their pimps were usually fairly close at hand. So, to say that there was some form of violence being performed against prostitutes you know, probably on a nightly basis, is not a stretch of the imagination. I'm sure the police in this period of time were either hearing about or receiving complaints from girls who were working the streets. And those are only the assaults that are actually reported to police. Prostitutes of any gender rarely go to authorities because A, What they are doing is illegal for some reason in this country, and B, either they will not be believed or they will be dismissed as, you know, you knew what you were getting into before you got into the car with the individual. Or you have the rare policeman who decides that, you know, I'll believe your story, but you're going to have to do something for me first, i.e. taking advantage of these women who have been assaulted. That's not a trope of Hollywood or fiction writers. That kind of stuff, unfortunately, does take place quite often. But these, this double homicide was different in that, again, the heads were missing from the victims as well as the hands, and one report I found actually said that A firefighter attempted to perform mouth-to-mouth on the victim who was lying on the bed, only to realize that she did not have a head. I'm going to attribute that to both the amount of smoke that was in the room, as well as sensationalistic journalism. Because you think it's bad now. Back then, newspapers were really all about blood and guts. And a tidbit of information such as that was guaranteed to increase that day's circulation. You have to remember, too, this was shortly after the Son of Sam killings had taken place. So any time reporters, particularly in a major city, got wind of a a horrific crime like this... They wanted to publish every gory detail that they could find. Eventually, one of the victims was able to be identified as Dide Gudarzi, a 22-year-old immigrant from Iran. While the 
other victim was unable to be identified. However, initially, police thought that she was a young woman by the name of Helen Sykes who had gone missing from Times Square in January of that year. On May 4th of 1980, Valerie Ann Street, who was a sex worker, was found stuffed under the bed of a quality inn in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Some reports state that she had been set on fire, however, the majority do not list this detail. The 19-year-old's hands were found handcuffed behind her back. She was covered in bite marks and beaten. She had died of asphyxiation, and traces of adhesive tape were found around her mouth. And this is where police first began to piece together that this killer had a hunting ground of sorts. As you'll remember, Marianne Carr had been found near this same motel. However, the police were unable to link the two crimes until after Cottingham was arrested. Shortly after this, a woman named Pamela Weisenfield was attacked and apparently raped, although she survived her attack. On May 15th of 1980, Jean Reiner was found inside of a room at the Seville Motel in New York City. Reiner's breasts had been severed from the body and it had also been set on fire. At this point, the police realized that, you know, there are similarities in these cases, that both three of these bodies in New York have been set on fire inside of hotel rooms. And there is some form of sexual mutilation. And just as in the torso murders, This victim, in fact, did have some injuries around her throat. Apparently, Reiner's throat had been cut. Although, whether this was before or after, you know, she was sexually mutilated and murdered is unknown. On May 22nd, 1980... Cottingham picked up an 18-year-old by the name of Leslie Ann Odell, who was working on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 25th Street. Again, this is a very seedy area of New York, especially at this time period. She agreed to have sex with Cottingham for $100. Now, this next part is kind of odd, as... They drove back to Hasbrook Heights to the Quality Inn where Valerie Street had been murdered. I have to imagine that at this point, Cottingham had control of Odell as it's really unlikely that she would have agreed to go for such a long drive with him in order to have sex if he had not taken her prisoner by this point. But who knows, I might be mistaken. She may have just been a very trusting young woman, and Cottingham may have told her, look, we'll go to this hotel I know, and when we're done, I'll drive you back out here. Cottingham offered to give her a massage, at which point he straddled her back, and pulled a knife on her, putting handcuffs onto her wrists. This next portion is fairly graphic and maybe unsettling to some. Cottingham began torturing Odell. He nearly bit off one of her nipples, and she later testified that he said to her, You have to take it. The other girls did. You have to take it too. You're a whore and you have to be punished. 
Now, some might be wondering how Cottingham was able to get away with the murders he had done previously at hotels. My guess is that the victims were more probably than not drugged and or gagged. And he was also checking into these hotels under assumed names. It wasn't like it is now where if you try and go get a hotel room, they want your driver's license. You have to pay by credit card. They're not going to take a check for cash. Back then, you did not have to provide any form of identification, and you could pay by cash, which meant that it was very easy for individuals like Richard Cottingham to get away with this kind of stuff because they're only going to have a vague description of the guy and the name he gave him. And unless one of the hotel staff got an eerie feeling about the individual, they're not going to be paying attention to what he's driving or license plate numbers or anything like that. And most of these places did not have, you know, closed circuit television where they were videotaping people coming and going from rooms and walking down halls. I haven't seen a picture of this particular motel but I am going to imagine, just based on the area that it is, it's one of those strip motels where all of the room's doors open onto the outside into the parking lot. You have two levels, and there's rooms all the way around the building. Again, this makes it much easier for the individual to commit their acts and get away with it. Uh, You know, they don't have his credit card or anything on file, so he can go in, do what he wants, leave the key in the room, and just leave. And they'll find the body later, either when they go to retrieve the key, or, you know, somebody complains about the smell. Nowadays, you don't go down and physically check out. They're charging you for another night in the hotel credit card or debit card. The staff at the motel where a murder had taken place roughly 18 to 20 days beforehand were still on nerves that this had happened at their establishment. So when they heard Odell's screams, they immediately contacted the police. Police arrived at the door to the hotel room. They demanded Cottingham uh, let them in. And when he eventually did open the door, they rushed into the room, at which point they found Odell lying on the bed, writhing in pain, and Richard Cottingham was taken into custody. Also taken into custody were handcuffs, a leather gag, two slave collars, a switchblade, replica pistols, and a stockpile of prescription drugs. Cottingham was brought up on a slew of charges, including kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, uh, sexual assault while armed, which is raped, sodomy, fellatio, possession of a weapon, possession of controlled dangerous substances. We actually had two charges on this as he had a number of different pills on him which he would use to drug his victims. So they have Cottingham in custody, but unfortunately they didn't have a whole ton of physical evidence to charge him in any of the murders. They believed they had the right guy, but they were not certain of it. Cottingham was very smart and methodical in his slangs, despite the brutality of the murders, and had actually only left behind one fingerprint on a, at a crime scene, and that was on a pair of handcuffs attached to one of his victims. So they began to build a case against him 
using patterns. They took what they knew about the crime he was arrested for committing and began to apply it to murders in the area, specifically in that hotel, and the surrounding areas and the similarities between all of them. While that's going on, they're building this case against him, they started looking into his background, and he really didn't have that deviant of a life so far as they knew. So we're going to go quickly go over Richard Cottingham's life. He was born on November 25th, 1946 in the Bronx, New York as Richard Francis Cottingham. He was the oldest of three children. In 1958, when he was 12, the Cottingham family moved to Rivervale, New Jersey. Also that same year, 1958, he began 7th grade at a parochial school for boys and girls where it was noted that he had trouble making friends, he took interest in homing pigeons and tinkering around the house and yard. In 1960, he entered Passaic Valley High School in Hillsdale, where it was noted that he was more accepted by his peers, but still seemed to be something of a loner. While in high school, Richard became a member of the track and cross-country team. He graduated in 1964, at which point he began working at his father's insurance company as a computer operator. Also during this time, he took courses to learn more about working with computers. Remember, the early mid-60s, computers were a fairly unknown field, and to be able to operate them and work on them was something of a specialty, which could earn him a fairly decent living. In 1966, at the age of 20, he got a job working for Blue Claw's Blue Shield of New York as a computer operator. Richard was fairly well-liked by his co-workers, and he was seen as a good employee. As we know, in 1967, he committed his first known murder, which was Nancy Vogel. On October 3rd of 1969, he was charged and convicted of driving while intoxicated in New York City. For this, he received 10 days in jail and a $50 fine. That tells me he must have been absolutely schnockered out of his mind in order to get arrested and receive jail time back in 1969 for driving while drunk because that was really unheard of. You really had to mess up in order that the police would not let you just go on your merry way, that they would take you into custody. At some point during all this, he met a young woman by the name of Janet who he ended up marrying on May 3rd of 1970 at Our Lady of Lord's Church in Queens, New York. Janet has said, and there's other things out there, that Richard was kind of a aloof partner and that he would be out for long periods of time, wouldn't tell her where he was going when he was coming home, and by all accounts, you know, it was on the surface, it might have appeared to have been a normal marriage. She was fairly unhappy. And it seems that although he supported his wife and later their family in a financial means, he really wasn't there for them in any other respect. From 1970 until 1974, they lived at the Ledgewood Terrace in Little Ferry, which is where the body of Marion Carr would later be found. On August 21st, 1972, he was charged and convicted of shoplifting at a Stearns department store in Paramus, where he received a $50 fine. 
On September 4, 1973, he was charged with robbery, sodomy, sexual assault, with the case later being dismissed. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier during the show when I was talking about, you know, his really long cooling off periods. It's more probable than not that Richard Cottingham had other victims that we don't know about or have yet to be linked to him. But here we have proof that, he, you know, he was doing things in between, you know, the known killings. And this might have been due to the impending birth of his firstborn, Blair, who was came into the world less than two months later. You know, that's a very stressful time. Anyone who has children will tell you that. In fact, there's a lot of killers out there who really start amping things up around the time of children being born. It's something of a stress reliever for them. On February 12, 1974, Richard was arrested and charged with unlawful lawful imprisonment and robbery. Again, this case was dismissed. In February of 1975, when Richard was 28, they moved into a three-bedroom home at 29 Vreeland Street in Lodi. A few months after this, their second child was born, a son named Scott. The following year, in October, another child was born, this one a girl named Jenny. This would be Richard's last child. Between 1977 and 1980, it is known that Richard had an extramarital affair with a woman by the name of Barbara. And his wife, Janet, knew about this affair as well as numerous other ones that he was carrying on. And these were enough that she was able to file for divorce in April of 1979, citing abandonment, mental cruelty, and non-support. At this point, Richard, when the divorce proceedings began, moved out of the family home proper and resided in the basement of the house. And it seems like This is really where Richard began to spiral. I've talked about that before with other killers, especially killers who commit multiple homicides over an extended period of time. And this is the perfect example of that, because prior to this, Richard had committed murders, but he was fairly meticulous. And while he took some chances in procuring his victims and even in the actual murders, he was not going back to the same places over and over again to commit his crimes. However, when his wife files for divorce in 1979, that's when we really see him and the savagery of his crimes escalate. He commits the double homicide in the hotel room in New York City where he lit the bodies on fire. He murders Valerie Street, amputating her breasts, assaults Pamela Wisenfield before leaving her in a parking lot, murders Jean Reiner, stuffing her body underneath a bed in a hotel room before finally his last known crime on May 22nd where he attacks Leslie Odell and it's odd because right after this after he's been arrested his wife withdraws the divorce proceedings and moves to Poughkeepsie New York to be with her children There was something of a whirlwind in the tri-state area media after Richard's arrest, and it was because of this that other victims came forward, 
as I said, the police were building a case against him using a pattern, the patterns that had been apparent in the other cases, coupled with the assault on Odell to link him to the other murders. On August 14th of 1980, he was charged with triple homicide, that of Marianne Jean Reiner, Dede Gazzari, and the Jane Doe who was not and never has been identified. The following month, in September, he was identified in a police lineup by Susan Geiger and Karen Schilf. Two days later, on the 17th, in Bergen County, a 21-count indictment was unveiled. These include the murders that took place in New Jersey, which were known of at that time. Richard eventually ended up going to trial in 1981, and he testified in his own defense at this trial, where he talked about his fascination with bondage, and that it was something that he had been into ever since he was a small child. Richard denied ever fantasizing or even hurting any other people. He also denied knowing any of the victims, with the exception of Leslie Odell. On June 11, 1981, Richard was convicted of 15 of the 20 counts that he had been brought up on. Three days later, on the 14th, he attempted suicide by drinking six ounces of a liquid antidepressant in his cell. It really goes to show you the character of this individual. He was really trying to present this, you know, well-adjusted, well-to-do image to society at large. And when he was caught and convicted of his crimes, he tried to take the easy way out by ending his own life rather than face the consequences of his actions. On July 25th of 1981, he was sentenced to 173 years to 197 years in state prison terms and fined $2,350. The following year, he was brought up on the Marianne Carr murder and was diagnosed with a ulcer after collapsing while being escorted to court. This trial ended up in a mistrial, and the prosecution sought a- another trial. During this other trial, Cottingham attempted to escape but was captured. On October 12, 1982, he was convicted of second-degree murder in a non-jury trial and he was sentenced to 25 years to life. In March of 1983, he was transferred to New York to stand trial. This for the three murders that took place in Manhattan, that of Dita Gazzari, the Jane Doe, and Gene Rayner. Shows you what a chicken shit that Cottingham is as he attempted to commit suicide again, this time in court, by slashing his left forearm with a razor in front of the jurors. A few days after this failed suicide attempt, he was convicted of the three murders and received an additional 75 years to life for their crimes. Since that time, Richard Cottingham has been in prison in New Jersey. In 2010, he pled guilty to the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. In 2021, this year, he pled guilty to the murder and drowning of Marianne Pryor and Lorraine Marie Kelly in 1974. It's my understanding that he pled guilty to these two murders with the understanding that he would not be prosecuted for them. They say that he killed 
roughly 11 women, up to as many as 30. However, Cottingham himself has said that he killed anywhere from 85 to 100 different women. Unfortunately, we may never know the reality of this as he's getting up there in age. Um, He is currently 74 years old. He'll be 75 in November of this year. If you see a picture of Richard Cottingham, even when he was younger, he was fairly unassuming looking. Yeah, he kind of was, had this 70s sleazy look to him. But especially now, he has a very Santa Claus quality to him with his slicked black back, white hair, and large, bushy Santa Claus beard. Personally, I think that there are other cases that need to be looked into in connection with him. I know an organization called the New Jersey Girls Murders, Girl Murders Project was started up in order to look at cases from the 1960s up into the 1980s involving young teenage girls up into adulthood who died under mysterious circumstances often involving sex crimes. Personally, I think one that really should be looked at closely is the death of Jeanette De Palma in Springfield, New Jersey in 1972. For those not aware Jeanette De Palma was a young girl who went out for the day and never returned home. There's a lot more with this case, but the quick condensed version of it is her body was found some months later up on top of the mountain in what has, you know, some sources describe as a satanic shrine having been erected around her. Others state that she was just lying in the middle of the forest and she was found because a dog brought part of her body back down to its owner. And it's not, you know, a stretch of the imagination as the area that Richard was most active in is only about an hour, give or take, away from where Jeanette went missing and where she was later found. And it's also, should be noted, that she died during the period of time that he is known to have been active. Unfortunately, one thing that goes against this is that she was so decomposed when her body was found, Jeanette's cause of death has never been able to be verified. Although one coroner did state that he suspected the cause of death was strangulation, and as we know about Richard Cottingham at this period during his murder spree, strangulation was his method at this period of time. So at least that lines up. So that is the death cast for this week. I'd like to thank you again for following me as I look at the case of the torso murderer Richard Cottingham. My name is Ian Totten, best-selling author. You can find me on all forms of social media. Just look for Ian Totten, author, or Corpse Creek Publishing. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Till next time, stay safe and stay morbid.
welcome, welcome to, to the Dead Cast.